It is so good to be with you this evening. Uh, I sort of just want to say, just live what you just sang and you'll be okay. <laughs> Praise God for his truth. Well, maybe the way to begin is a little bit of my own story. I've been married now 49 years. That itself is the argument for the power of grace. I know you're looking at me and thinking this man is way too young to be married this long. <laughs> so if you're trying to calculate my age, I was married at seven. <laughs> and there's been a particular issue that Luella and I have struggled with throughout our marriage. It's the issue of time. Some of you can relate to this. Luella was raised in Cuba. And she has sort of an island and a Latin view of time. <laughs> she lives on a bit of a vibe. You know, you go to the islands because time slows down. I was raised by a man who thought that the sole litmus test of the value of a human being was punctuality. You're on time, you can live. <laughs> and so we've struggled with this issue. Well, now it's Easter morning in the Tripp family when all our children were still home. And you know, if you have multiple children, not even Sunday morning is relaxing. <laughs> we're stuffing children into the van saying, shut up, we're going to worship. <laughs> well, our church, for reasons I don't really understand, had decided that the best way to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a full breakfast before the service on Sunday morning. What that had to do with the resurrection, I don't know, but it was a tradition. That meant we had to get up an hour and a half early. I woke up with feelings of futility. <laughs> and about time for us to leave, I walk into the bathroom and my wife Luella's there and I can tell by the way she's dressed, she's not near being ready. So I start saying helpful things to her. Like informing her it's not an Easter dinner, it's an Easter breakfast. She found that helpful. That's a lie. Uh, reminding her that I was an elder in the church. And my arrival before the ham and eggs was very important to my ministry. I'm, I'm cranking up the heat. Our then nine-year-old son is in the bathroom there with us, and he said, Daddy, may I say something? I should have said no. <laughs> he said, Daddy, do you really think this is the way a Christian man should be talking to his wife? <laughs> Trying to escape the conviction, I said, what do you think? This little boy looked me right in the eye and said, Daddy, it doesn't make any difference what I think. What does God think? I start walking out of the bathroom being duly corrected, and I hear this little voice behind me, may I say something else? <laughs> I'm thinking, no, no, please don't. He said, Daddy, what does the Bible say about it? I went into my bedroom, and two thoughts hit me right away. First, my pride reared up. I want to be a hero to my son. It was embarrassing that he saw through that moment and felt the tension his mom was feeling. But that didn't last very long. I immediately thought, how could it be that God would love me this much that he would give a twit of care about that little minor moment in the trip bathroom? 
It wasn't just a Paul moment or a Luella moment or a Darnay moment. God was in that moment. Now think about this. This is one moment in one morning, in one room, in one house, on one street, in one neighborhood, in one city, in one state, in one nation, in one continent, in one hemisphere, in one globe, in the universe, and God is in that moment. That is love of such a stunning magnificence, I can't wrap my brain around it. Now, why am I telling you this? Because you and I don't live in big, grand moments. You only make three or four big decisions your entire life. Look, most of us won't be written up in history books. Several decades after you die, the people you leave behind will struggle to remember the events of your life. You live your life in little moments. Listen, the character of a marriage isn't set in 10 big moments of life. The character of a marriage is set in 100,000 little moments of life. I have little interest this weekend in talking to you about the big, grand moments, but I have passion and excitement for sharing with you the gospel of Jesus Christ that enters in to the little moments where your marriage is actually formed. Listen, if I were to watch the video of the last six weeks of the little, moment of your, little moments of your marriage, what would I be watching? What goes on in the little moments of your marriage? Because that's the address where your marriage lives. What's happening in the little moments of your marriage? Well, there's one thing I know about everyone in this room. I know it for sure. It's what motivates me to be in Atlanta, even though today was almost as cold as it is in Philadelphia, where I live. I know that everyone in this room has been disappointed in your marriage. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. All of us have. None of us have gotten our dream. I know for you in this room and for those of you around the world who are watching this, I'm speaking to disappointed dreamers. Sometimes that's little moments of impatience, little moments of, of irritation. Sometimes that's deep and dark moments, moments of profound hurt. But all of us somehow, some way, have been disappointed in our marriage. It is true that I laid my eyes first on dear, sweet Luella in a lunch line in college. I was 17 years old. And it is true, as the, you've heard, that for me, it was love at first sight. And it is true that for Luella, it was first sight. <laughs> and before long, we were dating, and in three years, we were married. And it's been one of the most wonderful things in my life. I am so deeply grateful that I've been able to take this journey with this lady. 
I'm so thankful that God brought her into my life. How could it be that Paul Tripp, 17 years old, and Luella Jackson from Cuba, Ohio and Cuba, would happen to be together at that moment? And we've lived all over the place, and we've had the most amazing experiences. I wish I could say that that's all we've experienced, but it's not. Some of the highest joys we've ever had have been in our marriage, but some of the most painful things we've experienced has been in our marriage. Some of the times of hurt and disappointment that we've experienced have been in our marriage. And why is that? Why is marital disappointment universal? Can you answer that question? Why? Why is this so hard for us? Why is it that this person that once you couldn't wait to be with, who just hearing this person's voice would make your heart lift, why is it that this person now can pull such hurt out of you? Such impatience, such irritation. How could that be? How could it be that little things would cause big fights? You, you know that happens. Stupid stuff. Stuff that doesn't make any difference. Stuff that you ought to let go, but you don't. How? You love this person. How could it be so hard? to live with a person that you deeply love, but it is. Why are there moments where you wonder if you married the right person? Why are there moments where you just want to give up? Why do you just go into silence for a while? Why would your lover ever make you cry? Why? So that's what I want to talk about. That's what I want us to think about. Because only when you're able to own your disappointment, own the fact that it hasn't been what you hoped it would be for any of us, including me, that you begin to reach out for the help that only God can give. Listen, here's how the gospel works you got to accept the bad news or the good news doesn't mean anything to you. Now, maybe the problem begins with this weird thing called dating, Western culture dating. I think, this will offend some of you, that dating is just a step above used car sales. <laughs> because when you're dating, the last thing you want is for this person to get to know you because you're selling yourself to this person. A man who doesn't like to shop will shop. He'll say, yes, dear, I'll go to another 12 stores to look for those shoes that are in your head and probably never, ever been produced because, baby, when I'm with you, I'm shopalistic. <laughs> A woman who doesn't like sports will watch sports. Couldn't care less about sports. She'll say, sure, dear, I'll watch another game. Now, she'll give it away because right in the middle of a very important game, she'll say something like this, my, aren't their uniforms cute? A man would never say that. If a man thought that, he'd be terrified. 
And somewhere down the road, this woman begins to cry, this isn't the man I married. It is the man you married. The man you dated was a fake. (laughs) Happens to all of us, every one of us. And you're surprised when you discover who this person actually is. It's disappointing, isn't it? Or, or maybe it's because we, we mistake attraction for love. They're, they're two different things. Now, you would never, ever pursue a relationship with somebody that repulsed you. But attraction isn't love. You know, let's say there's a, a single lady and she's shopping for a man. She, she really wants to be married, and she's she sort of got a dream of what this guy is like, and she finally meets this man, and he just seems exactly what she's been hoping for. She's powerfully attracted to him. But listen to what I'm going to say. It'll bother some of you. I'm warning you. But she feels powerful emotions, a powerful draw to this man, man but She's not attracted to this man because she loves him. She's attracted to this man because she loves herself. Do you get it? And she loves what she thinks this man will give to her. That's not love. I think there's thousands of couples that get married because of powerful emotional attraction and haven't ever considered what love actually is. Love and attraction are dramatically different. Attraction is motivated by self-love. Love is motivated by other love. That's the difference. But we get married because we're drawn to this person we may not have actually signed on for self-sacrificing love for the good of the other person. And when we're asked to make those kind of sacrifices, we begin to get disappointed. I think there are thousands and thousands of couples that get, just get married with unrealistic expectations because we don't take seriously what the Bible says about us and the world that we live in. I want to talk about this book that is our guide for this weekend for a bit. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but your Bible isn't arranged by topic. That bothers some of you. You wish it was arranged by topic with little tabs on the end so you could go right to your topic of interest. The Bible is actually a grand redemptive story. It's a narrative. Maybe it's better to say it's the world's most important story with God's essential theological and application notes. And so you can't just run to the marriage passages to know everything you need to know about marriage because the Bible's not arranged that way. You need everything the Bible says in order to understand all the things that you will encounter in marriage. You could argue that there's material for marriage in every portion of God's Word. 
because it tells you something about God and something about yourself and something about life in this fallen world and something about the operation of grace and something about the power and promises of God. All those things are important to understand for your marriage. I think there's another thing that happens to us. We give, we assign too much power to romance. I don't know how many couples have said to me in premarital counseling, we don't think we're going to experience what our parents experience because we just love one another so much. I had a young future wife say to me, looking with sort of glassy eyes at her husband as he cooed in her ear, I don't think I could ever be angry with him. I was angry just to hear it. (laughs) Seriously. And so we think we have this emotional romance that's so strong, we will not face the things that other people face. Well, I want to say a couple things about that. First, no romance is so powerful as to alleviate the junk that you have dragged into your marriage. If romance could alleviate the junk you drag into your marriage, Jesus would not have had to come. It's not that strong. Second thing. Romance, true romance, is not the cause of a good marriage. True romance is the result of a good marriage. Do you hear what I said? True romance is not the cause of a good marriage. True romance is the result of a good marriage. Now, in order to understand the real world of marriage, what you're really dealing with, you have to understand that your marriage lives in three worlds. I'm going to give you those three worlds. It's so important to understand this. First, your marriage lives in the world of Genesis 2. Everything the Bible says about God's creation of this profoundly important human relationship in Genesis 2 is gorgeous. It's beautiful. In fact, you can feel human language being stretched to its furthest extent to capture the beauty of what this relationship is meant to be that these two people would leave their father and mother and would cleave together and the relationship would be so intimate and so intertwined and so unified that it could only be called one flesh. Something that's not said about any other relationship in human life. Listen, marriage is meant to be a gorgeous gift of God. 
to have a companion who, the, who has journeyed with me for all the, through all these years, who wakes up with me every morning, goes to bed with me every night, who has been through the hardest times and the most joyful of times, who has forgiven me in moments when what I've done is wrong. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Your problem isn't marriage. The problem isn't that what God created is defective. Your problem isn't there's something wrong with this institution. Listen, we have a culture that's messing with these institutions. Marriage is not the problem. But you don't, your marriage doesn't just get to live in Genesis 2. It would be wonderful if it did, but it doesn't. Because your marriage also lives in Genesis 3. That moment where Adam and Eve disobeyed the Creator. And everything that Genesis 3 describes about marriage is sad and broken. There's fear and shame that has entered this relationship. How many marriages enter, experience fear and shame? There's acrimony between the husband and the wife. There's brokenness with God the Creator. It's sad. And you see, if you, if you study that, that passage, you understand the darkness of sin. It's, it's I believe, 2 Corinthians 5.15 unpacks Genesis 3 for us because it says that Jesus came, got to listen to this, so that those who live would no longer live for, can you finish it? Themselves. You see, what Paul is arguing, helping us to understand the horrific sin of the garden, is that the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin puts me in the middle of my world. Sin makes it all about me, my wants, my needs, my feelings. Sin causes me to shrink the field of my concern down to the claustrophobic confines of my wants, my needs, my feelings. Sin is self-obsessed and self-focused and selfish in the deepest sense of what that means. Sin is fundamentally meistic. It's not a word. I made it up. Now, now get this. That means you don't struggle with marriage just because you married a less than perfect person. Are you ready for this? Well, I don't know why I'm asking permission. I'm going to say this anyway. Your biggest struggle in marriage, you brought into your marriage, husbands. You brought into your marriage, wives. You had it before you got married. Marriage is not your problem. That other person is not your main problem. Your deepest, most profound 
problem is you. Because sin is selfish. It's antisocial. I want my way. And I don't want you in my way. You know that's true. You go to the grocery store because, say you're a man and you know who you are. And your wife would just ask you to pick up one jar of salsa. Doesn't seem like a hard request. And so being the dutiful husband, you, on your way home from work, you drive by and you, you, you're hoping that the grocery store will be empty. And you, you run down the aisle, you grab the salsa, you run for the one checkout counter that has a person at it, even though there's 15 counters. And just before you get there, a lady pulls in front of you with 100 items in her basket and 90 coupons. <laughs> you immediately hate her. <laughs> and you want to share something with her, but it wouldn't be Jesus. Why do you get angry in traffic? Because you're selfish. I had a thought once, it's embarrassing to admit this. I'm in traffic and I thought, don't they know I have somewhere to go? I want them to depart like the waters of the Red Sea and I could just drive through and say, thank you. Why do you get upset when somebody agree, disagrees with you? Shocking. Or when a husband and wife isn't ready when they're supposed to be. The chaos of marriage is the selfishness of sin. Because selfishness is antisocial. It's my way. It's my time. It's my plan. It's my opinion. It's me, 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 me. Listen, it's a wonder that any marriage makes it. I'm serious. You know what it's like. My wife is supposed to be home one day at 4 o'clock, and it's 4.01, and she's not there. So I call her. I say, where are you? One word, where are you? She says, I'm, I'm coming. How long, how long is it going to be? The woman is stuck in traffic. I'm not saying to her, I'm so sorry. You have to be stuck in traffic. How long is it going to be? Now, at that moment, she feels so deeply loved. <laughs> or I'm counseling this couple, and I asked them how their week was, and they told me this story. Uh, his favorite meal was homemade hamburger and french fries. Pretty simple. Well, 
he got delayed leaving work and he gets home and the french fries are supposed to be crisp are now limp and the hamburger that's supposed to be limp is now crisp <laughs> and his wife's sort of mad and he could tell that she's huffy and he's thinking, you know, look, I provide for this family, give me a break. And she inadvertently puts an empty ketchup bottle on the table. And he can't resist. He grabs that ketchup bottle and sticks it in her face and says, and what do you expect me to do with this? She told him. Selfishness of sin. It's sad but true. Our marriages don't just live in Genesis 2. They live in Genesis 3. Now, I am so thankful I don't have to leave you there because there's another world that your marriage lives in. If you have a Bible with you, or an iPad, or an iPhone, or some weird, sad, (laughs) off-brand. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Wow, wow, wow. And this is what it says. God, as an act of incalculable grace exercised His power so that you and I would have everything we need. Now listen, the words here are very important. It says, His divine power has already given us. That's a perfect tense. That's an action in the past with continuing results into the future. It's already happened. He's already given us everything we need. Now stay with me. For life and godliness. If he just said, I think Peter's being a good pastor here, if he just said life, his people, his readers would think he's just talking about eternal life. And so he says, and godliness. What is godliness? Stay with me. It's a God-honoring life between the time I come to him and the time I go home to him. It's a It's a godly life between the already and the not yet. He is preaching to us the nowism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly the world you're living in. He knows exactly the things that you're facing. He knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. And he has given you everything you need. Now I want to be honest with you. If world three 
wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't be here tonight. Because I think I would open up the wounds of your marriage with nothing to offer you. What do you have? If you just have Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, you have this beautiful thing that we have messed up. End of story. But that's not where your marriage is left. Your marriage is left with this promise. I know you. I know what you're dealing with. I know the death of your dream. I know your disappointments. I know the cry of your heart. I know the things that seem impossible now, like they'll never change. I know the places you're stuck. I know those of you who want to quit. I know that you look at other couples and wish you had what they had. I know, I know, and I have already placed in my storehouse of grace everything that you need. Marriage is a beautiful thing. The selfishness of sin has made it a dysfunctional thing. The Savior offers you the hope and power of change. That's where we live. Now, if I believe that, there are three mindsets that I want to shape my marriage. Let me give you those three mindsets. First, I need to have a harvest mindset. A harvest mindset. It says this, that every day I plant seeds in my marriage that are going to grow into something. What seeds are you planting in your marriage? Is your marriage dominated by the dark seeds of Genesis 3 without the gray seeds of 2 Peter 1? Some of you have to face the fact that the, hurt, the hurtful things you're now facing 10 years into marriage are your seeds. It's your harvest. You planted those seeds, little seeds of selfishness. That means you don't communicate well anymore. It means your sex life is dysfunctional. It means you argue over stupid, unimportant things. Those are you, that's your harvest. You've got to own that's your harvest. You've planted the seeds. Because if you don't own that, there's no hope of change. You're planting seeds. Everybody in this room is a gardener. Every marriage is a garden. You're planting seeds. Harvest mindset. Second mindset, it's a investment mindset. The Bible says that 
were all after treasure. This is Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. That means you're value-oriented. You live after your values. And the question to ask is, if I were to watch that video that I've talked about, what would I say is valuable to you in your marriage? What would I say is important? Is being right more important than gentleness? Is having control more important than forgiveness? Is getting your way more important than sacrifice and service? There's some set of values that have captured your heart that determine the kind of husband or wife you are. What is important to you in your marriage? Don't give the spiritual answer. What do you really want? What really makes you happy? If you're at the end of a day and you say, wow, that was such a great day in my marriage, why would you say that? What would make you say that? What is it that you got in that day that made you happy? Are they the values of Genesis 3? Or the values of 2 Peter 1? It's a third mindset. It's a grace mindset. I'm going to say a lot more about this, but my struggle is when I use the word grace in marriage, people think it's just being permissive. It means I just don't deal with things. And that's not grace at all. Listen, you've got to hear this. Grace never calls wrong right. If wrong were right, there would be no need for grace. You hear what I said? Grace never calls wrong right. If wrong were right, there'd be no need for grace. Grace is a way of dealing with wrong. Here's what I understand. I understand that God is at work in our marriage. That every moment He is active. And grace means I want to be part of what God is doing in your life. Not just judge you and criticize you and walk away. But I want to ask the question, what is God doing in this moment in our marriage and how can I be part of it? How can we take one more step away from Genesis 3? How can we take more steps towards 2 Peter 1? How do we do that? How does this moment provide for us a window into what's still wrong with us and draw us to grab a hold of what has been provided for us? I want to be part of this grace. I want to see God in his grace redeem our failure. harvest mindset, an investment mindset, a grace mindset. 
What I'm saying is this. Your marriage is shaped by habits because that habit capacity is something that God's given us. And a good marriage is the result of good, godly, gospel-driven habits. Habits of harvest, habits of investment, habits of grace. A bad marriage is the result of bad habits. Habits that judge and divide and devour and separate and disunify and cause hurt. What are the habits of your marriage? Do your habits live too comfortably in Genesis 3? Or are your habits reaching out toward the hope of 2 Peter 1? I know it is true of me and you. I have no independent capability of being a good husband, none. My instincts again and again go in the wrong direction. I can make a big deal of little things. I can be shockingly self-righteous on one hand and overly critical on another. But I get up in the morning with hope because I have not been left to myself. Because Jesus is for me. And Jesus is in me. And Jesus is with us. And because of that, we know we can do better. Marriage lives in three worlds. Genesis 2, Genesis 3, 2 Peter 1. Let's pray. Lord, we really do need the bad news of the gospel, so we'll run toward the good news of the gospel. We really want to fool ourselves <coughs> into thinking we're okay when we're not okay. Help us to own our disappointment to own the selfishness of sin that has made marriage so dysfunctional so often and help us to grab a hold of the reality that you have provided for us everything we need. Thank you, thank you, thank you, we thank you. And I am so bold as to ask that this weekend will not just be the dissemination of marriage information but would result in heart and life and marriage transformation, won't you in 
grace do that for us. So in weeks and months and years to come, we look back on this weekend and say, God was with us and he did a good thing. We pray this in the sweet and strong name of the Savior, King, Emmanuel, the Lamb, Jesus. Amen.